Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. So welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Video Insiders podcast. I'm Dror Gill. And with me, as usual, my co-host, Mark Donegan. Hey, Mark, how are you doing today? Hello, Dror. I'm doing great. Ready to kick off uh, yet another. I don't know. Are we at episode 80 yet? This is episode 80. Would you believe it? Episode 80 of the Video Insiders. I have to tell you something. When I invited our, our guest today, uh, he was on the show before. So I wrote an email, you know, hey, you know, you were here three and a half years ago. And then I'm thinking, what? Three and a half years ago on the podcast? There must be some mistake. But no, that, that's it. I think we started in November 2018 or? 2018. It was November 2018. Amazing. Yeah. And, and we're very happy to do this again and again. And we, of course, want to thank our audience for making this possible, for listening to us. So today... We are hosting uh, Dom Robinson. He's the co-founder and the creative firestarter at Ideas. And uh, we already hosted him and he talked a lot about uh, ideas and how to make video good on a bad day. If you remember, if not, listen to that episode. But today we've invited the Dom because he's the founder of a very important organization that's uh, making a lot of noise lately. And this is the Greening of Streaming. So hi, Dom, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, guys. I really appreciate it. I, I don't know whether to feel old or important, but either way, I'll take it. <laughs> well, you are important, Dom. If we brought you here twice, you are important. I'll also have to say that Dom is a, is a great guy, very knowledgeable guy, and we really like to have him um, on the show. And he also has this British humor, which can help in difficult situations, such as now, Dom, where you are joining us from a flooded basement. I am, yeah. I think we, if you haven't already, I think we should be dubbing cave noises and, uh, and the sound of swamps. You can probably hear the echo on my microphone here. My office is normally full of sound protection and production kit. Right now it has one slightly damaged model plane and, uh, and a very, very wet floor. Uh, which is causing the echo on my microphone and nothing else in it. So apologies for that, but normal service isn't quite resumed at the moment. <laughs> well, uh, the, the show must go on. It's not the end of the world. There are bigger problems out there to solve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And today we're certainly here to here to talk about some of those bigger problems that, that you're tackling and and others. So, Well, thanks for the interest. You know, it's, um, the, the greening and streaming has really picked up some momentum over the last six months and uh, caught, kind of caught me by surprise. You know, I thought we'd get a few people together and talk and suddenly this has been, uh, you know, it's been quite an adventure the last six or eight months. So it's a joy to be here to come to talk to you about it a bit. Well, why don't you uh, tell us what exactly is the greening of streaming and, you know, what was the genesis? What's the story? How you started, came up with the idea? Sure. So, um, I mean, as you guys know, I've been in the streaming space since the sort of mid nineties and, uh, seen it all sort of emerge around me and it's gradually gone from being you know four or five of us going out playing with racks of kit to try to get a stream going through to everyone and their dog having a FaceTime account and off we go. Uh, so the world's changed a lot in 25 years. Over the time I've gone through building a CDN and then evolved that into Ideas, a software company that I now run which essentially sell software for live streaming platforms to people operating at scale. 
And along with that, I've written for Streaming Media Magazine and chaired a number of different CDN-focused conferences for the last 10 years, certainly. As part of the Content Delivery Summit at the end of sort of 20, over 2018, 2019, I approached uh, Eric uh, to ask him about getting a commission for an article looking at sustainability in, in the sector. And um, as, as I like to say, my wife was away. And as you do when your wife's away, I was watching videos about data centers and the horrific amount of energy they were using. It wasn't that it was all entirely new to me, but I think I just, it just stopped and made me think about the scale, you know, entire chunks of the Appalachian Mountains being scraped off to burn in the great coal fires, fueling our data storage of our cat videos and so on. And it, it made me think that only part of the picture was being addressed here. And while data centers are sitting targets, um, actually the, the telecoms infrastructure and the streaming infrastructures, which are highly distributed, you know, for every one origin, there may be a hundred edge caches. And it started making me think about the volumes and the numbers going on in, in some of these contexts. And I started doing some research. What was interesting was um, the data was all over the place. And in my opinion, had not come very much from the industry. It was the climate scientists who were trying to get taps into the industry and understand what was going on that were producing any types of evaluation of how much energy was being used and what the sustainability impacts of that energy were. So I started asking questions as the chairman's prerogative, if you like, at the CDN conferences. I started asking some questions and um, just seeing who was interested in the topic. And in the first CDN conference, everyone sort of stared at me blankly and went, I don't know. That's the finance director's decision, isn't it? He chooses which colour electrons we let in. And that was about the extent of the entire discussion. And it sort of disheartened me a bit. And yet I felt that there were quite a few people who were interested to take the conversation further. So I registered greeningofstreaming.org after the article had come out, thinking it was a good name. And I stuck an email catch-all on there and said to people as I socialised the idea, anyone who's interested in this topic, drop me an email and we'll try and get everyone who's interested together in, in some sort of informal group. Over the year, I don't know whether it was directly prompted by the questions, but over the year things started to change. And by the end of the year, uh, notably Akamai and Intel had stepped forward and come, wanted to come to talk to the Content Delivery Summit, but about their sustainability strategies. And they'd suddenly... These big PLCs had taken an ESG position, which was just awesome. It meant that the conversation was on the map. And they both brought some really interesting topics. And it struck me that actually there might be more people interested in this than just a sort of quick mailing group, that we should try to bring everyone out of the woodwork and have something like a half-day Zoom event. I went hunting for a keynote, and I was very keen to have a, if you like, a non-partisan keynote, an academic, someone neutral to the industry, and someone who also understood the digital media space, but at the same time would have some purview on the sustainability and the climate science, because one thing I acknowledged early was no one in our industry knows anything about climate science. We are CDN engineers, and we need to talk with people who are experts in these wider sciences. So Dan Sheen from Bristol University was singled out, actually connected to me by George Camier from the IEA, who's been really, he and I have been having some great dialogue after the shift report, which was one of the early reports, which raised some eyebrows in this space. But Dan Sheen's really the sober academic uh, here. And his work is kind of a key underpinning for 
more recent reports, which you'd identify as low cap or, or the carbon trust report and DIMPAX reports and so on. So there was some degree of consensus that Dan is a great reference point for these things. So I asked Dan to keynote a, a one-day event, ask Akamai and Intel to come back, and then started putting word out to have this kind of what I nicknamed a speed dating session, where we were going to get all the companies who were making sustainability claims in their marketing to come and to put them in five-minute back-to-back little presentations. We ended up with quite a busy um, program. And as the program was filling up, I spoke to my two colleagues at Ideas and I said, this thing's too big to stop. When I ran a CDN, one of the first in Europe in, in the early 2000s, we were the first CDN to join the Internet Service Providers Association because by nature all CDNs are technically ISPs. And I also somewhere down the line did a postgraduate diploma in uh, internet diplomacy, which I sub-sponsored and so on. So I was quite interested in internet policy and the emerging reforms that might affect industries like CDN and streaming. So I felt pretty sure that we wanted to take a leaf or two out of ISPA's book and create a group that aspires to industry-led reform from within the industry and to make it members-led, not-for-profit organisation. You know, the aim here is to save the planet, not to get rich. You can do the getting rich in other organisations, and there's loads of those, and that's cool. We're not against that, but you can't really win a climate thing unless we all win. So we needed a certain um, sort of sheathing of swords and a forum to create discussion across the industry. So with that, we set the organisation up and then last September, we held our one-day event and we immediately opened the doors to invite members. And we held our first members meeting with a dozen members uh, in October, formed the organisation. Um, there's one simple cardinal rule that was put forward around forming, and that is no greenwashing. We're not an accreditation organisation or a certification organisation. It's just a gentleman's agreement between fiercely competing peers at some point that if you put out some marketing which is frankly bs uh, and someone else in the organization calls you out on it well you're being picked on by somebody who understands what you're doing and maybe we need to have a discussion and if it comes to the point where everybody as a group decides that your marketing is just lying through the teeth greenwashing we may well ask you to step back from being an active member uh, and that's essentially the cardinal rule of greenwashing, which has been fascinating because the moment all these members joined us, they were very keen to go out and shout about these different isolated claims. But once I started and, and the group started throwing these systemic views back at them and said, yeah, turn it down there. It goes up over there, though. Uh, and we started looking in any detail about this. Everybody pulled back from their, their marketing. Everybody stopped this. Oh, well, we can be better than everyone else. So there was no need to actually enforce that rule, right? Because people just pulled back the marketing and you didn't need to throw them out. <laughs> Absolutely. In some ways, we took the pressure off them a little bit, to be fair. There's been pressure to put claims out. And people have wanted, right, rightly, to do that. And I think it's a noble thing to have wanted to do. But we weren't joined up in our conversations. So I don't want to go into too much of the detail here, but there's, this, there's something called Scope 3, uh, which in climate science speak, basically scopes one and two are essentially things that you control. Scope three is anything that you can only exert influence on in your supply chain. And our industry is everybody else's scope three. Right? And so the broadcasters have washed the pipe and said it's all down on the distributors. We'll sort out production, but it's all down on the distributors. 
Uh, and in fact, were, I think in some ways more complicated than that, they've washed the pipe further and said, actually, it's all on the consumers and what, and what electronics they choose and hell, what control do we have? So the claims weren't standing up. And when you take a big system view, the problem is quite interesting. The only figures that we'll put out, and I'll talk more about where we've got to with the organisation in a second, but the only figures that we kind of work with as a group, Malmedin has put out a figure, which I think most people agree with, which is that about 2 to 3% of world energy is being used for ICT, so information computing technology. If you take a little bit of a lateral step using the Cisco, commonly quoted Cisco, 70 to 80% of traffic is video, you could probably argue that the systems worldwide that are creating and delivering digital video might be as much as 2% of world energy. Now, to put that in scale, the aviation industry is 3% of world energy. So our industry silently has gone from being a niche hobby for people like me to stream weird pictures of cats to people to being a global media and entertainment and video conferencing communication platform, which is using as much energy to feed itself as the aviation industry. Obviously, a lot more people use streaming on a daily basis than fly, but uh, it's an interesting comparison. So Greening Stream does have a real-world engineering objective to try to reduce that. And we've become very focused on energy. We don't really talk about carbon a lot because, A, it's contentious and political and complex. And, B, we're not climate scientists. We don't know how to convert watts into kilograms of carbon and so on. But we are, as a group, engineers. So we all are very clear about what kilowatt hours and watts are. And we can actually put our fingers on those and work to reduce those. So it's not about offsetting and saying, well, it's going to get worse because people want better quality pictures put up with it. It's about saying, well, we want to give them better quality pictures, but with half the energy. And so we want to be good energy citizens as a whole and make some of that energy available for other purposes, even if it's 100% renewable. And this energy that's being consumed by the streaming industry Is it mostly in the storage of the videos, the encoding of the videos, or I assume probably the delivery of the videos to the end consumers, right? So, um, we don't know. Uh, we are in the process of actually finding out. And one of the things that was concerning me as I sort of got the project going, there was a lot of people saying, oh, the problems you know, in detail is like this, and we're making it better here. One of the things we did as a, as a group as we came together, we, we, we let members form working groups. So we kicked it off with a, a primary working group called Lexicon, which is a nice esoteric one, and it is trying to define measures that we have consensus with across the industry. So there were people talking about watts per frame and kilograms of carbon per hour of compression or a number of elephants you've got to burn to uh, change your pixel ratio or whatever <laughs> it was. And it was, it was getting ridiculous, you know. Yeah. Um, and to have any sense of collaboration, we need to come to consensus. And in fact, the industry didn't have any consensus, which worried me. Because there are policymakers already trying to regulate our industry based on targets and initiatives that the industry doesn't even understand. So we, we, we really do need to have that conversation and have that consent. It's a bit weird spending you know, months talking about what. But what does what mean in terms of streaming and how does that translate to media workflows and so on? It's a very um, cerebral conversation, that one. And we've, we've always expected Lexicon might occasionally spit out some glossary terms, but essentially be the brainstorming space. There's then Working Group 2, which is outreach, and that's for those who like to get involved in membership growth. And we did a great event together with, uh, in Parliament, which I'll talk about later. 
uh, a few weeks ago um, and, and so on. Working group three is the long-term spine and that's the best practices group. So it aspires to aggregate, publish, share best practice as we form it. But as we formed working group three, we realized we don't know where the needle is. So we can't recommend how anyone can move their needle. At which point working group four formed and that was really where in a lot of ways the, the rubber hit the ground um, so I was trying to describe and articulate a problem space that I saw and I drew an end-to-end diagram which I'll, I'll get to you I don't know if it can go out with the podcast somehow but it's kind of gone out more than the London tube map the last six months <laughs> yeah yeah we, we can link to it in the in the episode notes I'm contemplating having it tattooed on my forearm I'm so proud of it but basically <laughs> it, 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 it's it's a live streaming workflow it was a schematic I drew up and it shows you everything that's going on in the telecoms as well as in the streaming service layer so I included it schematically down to the logic of MPLS H, uh, HFC all the different types of network and it shows you all of the infrastructure that has to be powered on including the distribution amplifiers in the telephone network including the router in the home including everything that physically needs to be powered on through the system before you get a packet of video through and i challenged the, the audience who've been working with something called the data attribution model to tell me how much energy was being used through this streaming service before we started streaming the video And by the data attribution model, apparently none is because there's no data being transferred. You can't save any bandwidth less than sending none. Yeah, though before you start the streaming, there, there is no energy involved in the streaming. So that's the argument that the data attribution model has led to. And that's been the basis of most science relating to digital media and energy. The problem is it's fundamentally wrong. And if you're an infrastructure guy like I am, you look at that thinking, Jesus, Akamai's however many hundreds of million pound quarters electricity bill isn't magic. It isn't nothing. It isn't not going on because no one's streaming. So the question I put with the diagram or the null hypothesis that I put was as we go from naught users two weeks before a major football event to 30 million peak and back down to naught again, that the energy profile wouldn't change at all that actually it would make no difference because on day zero at the beginning of the two-week cycle, everything is provisioned for peak. So it doesn't matter if you're doing a one meg, a half meg, a 20 meg stream. It's only when you saturate the NICs or saturate the CPU that your energy in a quanta of a server jumps up. But reducing it by 50% doesn't make any difference unless you reduce those underlying quantas of infrastructure. And actually in practice, what happens is the infrastructure is provisioned at the point of contract months in advance. So if you look at the traffic profile, where you have a short 90-minute spike of traffic, you have weeks, if not months, of energy being burned on the whole infrastructure because there's no communication through the supply chain to say, I don't need this until 10 minutes before, and I'm confident that if I test it at eight minutes before and it comes up positive, that we're good to go with a big major sporting event or whatever it may be. And that's about a systemic problem in the planning of how we communicate and provision capacity and, 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 and services. So working group four have gone away and have instrumented their systems. We have a, a, a small startup we adopted called Humans Not Robots, who are creating dashboards and sort of uh, data aggregation. It's a central point for us. Akamai boldly stepped forward and went, okay, let's set the benchmark high. You can have real-time energy data from all of our coming on for half a million servers, which is a data storage problem, frankly, but uh, that's a different issue. It's a nice problem to have. <laughs> but yeah, they, they give it to you, you you'll take it. <laughs> Absolutely. And so we are now working hard on more telcos, more ISPs, and more big infrastructure providers getting involved. 
and getting this data flow into us. So we can pick workflows and we can start to see the energy deltas because that's actually, in some ways, it tells us more about what's going on with the static energy demand and it helps us understand what happens with peaks. But if those peaks are not going from zero to peak, they're actually going from 98% to peak, then we've got problems elsewhere. And the aim at the moment is if we can focus in on getting this energy wastage down by shortening the supply chain provisioning cycles and the capacity planning, we might be taking out, you know, many tens of percent out of the energy wastage here as a first project. So everyone's feeling quite buoyant about that. First observation runs, first test runs, the energy data is clear. There is a massive amount of static energy and very little influxes as we vary the audiences in some contexts. We need more data now. And so we're recruiting big scale uh, operators hard and fast to clarify that picture. So that's working group four. There's a lot of activity and it's fun. Um, and it's nice to be going get out doing something rather than just talking about planting trees and things, which is important, but not nearly as effective as not burning the energy in the first place. Then we've got another couple of forming working groups as well. And there's an audio group coming together because there's a lot of people who've got very specific focus on audio streaming, audio storage, audio distribution related issues. And then we, we've got our, our newest members, uh, MQA and Vnova, hopefully going to start some more in-depth discussion on the compression side because doubtless there are important learnings and, and things we can share and develop together in the compression space. Um, but again, all is not as it seems. It's not simply a matter of making things more compressed. Uh, there are other things which I'm sure you guys can school me on, which are um, possibly more important, certainly of equal importance to keeping that bandwidth uh, tight. We did a big event, launch, public launch event at Parliament um, just a few weeks ago. I thought 30 people would come. We had 120 plus and 40 organisations. And when we totted it up, there was over a, a trillion dollars of revenue represented by the organisations in that room. And I was truly humbled by that. <laughs> it's not often you get that many people coming together to go, let's make something really interesting happen. And uh, So that's cool. Yeah, that's uh, really incredible. It's it's an incredible effort. And um, as I think about the challenge, uh, anytime it, you work to get some cross-industry cooperation, <laughs> wow, you've got your work cut out for you. So kudos, first of all, kudos for, you know, even attempting to, to bring everybody together. You know, I think the question that, that I have is, uh, and you mentioned that you're going after service providers and, you know, you're looking for data from a, a larger part of the ecosystem. And, and this is just my thinking, so I might be completely wrong, but I'm wondering if you run into the mindset on the OTT side of sort of kicking the can down the road as in shrugging their shoulders saying, I don't know, doesn't AWS, you know, aren't they carbon neutral? You know, I run everything on AWS. What else can I do? <laughs> you know, uh, or some other big public cloud. Is that going to be part of the challenge, especially on the OTT side to kind of say, Hey guys, you know, yeah, you, you can still use your public clouds. You, you can still utilize what's AWS, Azure, you know, GCP, whatever. However, um, this is your responsibility you know, and, and there are things that you can do that are in your control, you know, that you need to be looking at. Um, it's a bit of a moving landscape and these are glaciers. And the one thing I will re-emphasize repeatedly is anything that's moving in the right direction is a good thing. So saying something's may, maybe not enough doesn't criticize it. It's to say that there's more that can be done. Yeah. So um, I am concerned about the pressure to declare net zero for um, certainly very public-facing organisations, 
particularly those with large subscriber bases, they're very keen to convey to the public that they're net zero. I am concerned that contracting and changing your internal energy provider to being a privately owned company, which you outsource the contract to, moves it out into scope three, which allows you to declare net zero, has done nothing to reduce the energy wastage. So I am very concerned about the politicking of it, hence the power of the no greenwashing sort of central tenant of greening and streaming. And um, I think broadcasters are a little hesitant to step into greening and streaming because they've done a lot. They've done a lot to look at their production workflows. They've done a lot to look at their day-to-day operations, which is definitely not to be ignored. You know, they're very, very important things. There is a sense that everything after distribution begins is magic and it runs on thin air. Um, And the problem is that's then met by the ISPs and telcos who by and large are solving the problem by changing their energy supply to renewable, which is good. But if we can halve the energy that we need from the renewables, we can free that energy up to be used for, for example, heating, which is, you know, the dominant lion's share of most energy use. So we still have a responsibility, if not a, a vocation as engineers, to engineer better and Power has not been one of the pillars of architecture. So I sort of stand on this, you know, for the first 10, 12 years of the CDNs existing, everyone was focused on price. You know, you were getting a pound 50 a gigabyte off major CDNs in 1998, and that's dropped to 002 cents per gigabyte or whatever it is today. That's a massive change, and that's enabled the economy of streaming. The second stage was performance. It had to be good enough quality that people got engaged and watched it and stayed watching it and consumed it and so on. But as engineers, nobody had ever, as I pointed out earlier in putting it to the architects of the CDNs only three years ago, people were just writing that off as the finance director's decision. Who's the cheaper energy provider or who's the greener energy provider, whatever the decision is. But there wasn't really an architectural imperative to go and, other than in mobile devices and portable devices, to go and look at power efficiency as an absolutely key imperative part of your design process. Um, And I think that's changing quickly, and I think that's a good thing, and that's what we really want to foster in greening and streaming is regardless of your energy sources, regardless of the fact that you might palm it off to a scope three provider, how can you make sure that your architecture demands the least energy while still delivering that performance and that price that your consumers require? So it's a change of thinking. There is some resistance. Change is never easy for big glacial companies. But uh, when you go in as a direct action group to the engineers within those companies and say, we're going to change it anyway because we're the engineers, there's a certain petulance which we're appealing to in the engineers to just say, just do it regardless of what management thinks because it's good for the energy, good for the availability of energy, probably good for the planet, certainly good for the pocket in today's energy crisis. So let's do it cleaner and greener. Yeah, I think in, in, in many situations, the pressure to be green Um, and to be environmentally conscious comes from the people working in those organizations, you know, because it's something that aligns with their values. Absolutely. And as part of the um, our parliamentary launch, we conducted a, a YouGov survey of about 2,000 very general sort of random de- demographic of how the consumer relates energy and streaming, whether they relate it at all and how they, and how they relate it. And once they've understood that there is a relationship, whether they feel the responsibility is on them or on the industry to change behavior and it is without a doubt an issue 
it is without a doubt an expectation that it's the industry's responsibility to drive the change. So there are in, really interesting initiatives like the green button services to opt into eco mode on your TV to uh, choose to demand a less complex or a lower bitrate stream or whatever it may be. There are those initiatives. They sometimes fly in the face of the consumer proposition of quality because sometimes they are a trade-off of quality. And I think it's better to try as an industry to focus on the fact that we all want to maintain that quality. But if we can work systemically together, we can make some really interesting changes. For example, I'm going to give a couple of examples, and I'd be interested to hear both of your comments on this. One of the models is we can change what the normative service is. So if you say, let's say a 2K service is your normative service, that means that you might deploy a certain scale of caching to deal with that 2K content. In order to, say, go to double the resolution, you might need to have a significant amount more in your caching layer, which is reasonably big if you concentrated it into a single data center. For an organization like Akamai, that's a huge, huge data center. So if you're adding a 4K service, the reason you're caching it is so that the 4K user can click and play instantly. Now, if you set an expectation that if you're going to opt into the 4K service, that might take four seconds extra to start, you might be able to remove an entire caching layer, which looking at it like onion skins might be a significant volume of caching, a significant volume of energy. And all we've actually done is changed an expectation. It's not changed an opportunity. They can still watch the 4K stream, but we've explained that because there are premium grade of, uh, of user or they're a niche, niche grade of user and they want the 32K UHD 320 frame a second ludicrous display quality co content on their mobile phone because they want to show off to their friends at a party or whatever it may be, yeah, which is just nuts. It's not that they can't have it, but it might not be touch and go because um, the internet's a wonderful thing. You can provision a one-to-one -one, one service but in provisioning it with an immediate go and having all of the service available everywhere in the world ready to meet that expectation creates a lot of infrastructure demand. And actually, it's always for a very niche part of the audience. So having that conversation is just a subtle change in how we normalize what we put out and, and, and how we, we balance that, that expectation with the consumer. The other one, which is the one that I think you guys would have some input on, because it's a discussion we're really trying to get going within the forums in the in Greening of Streaming. When we talk about why we're having a policy engagement, there are things which might not work for the market for a particular vendor type, which might have significant energy differences. So, for example, let's supposing a codec vendor marketed a codec or a technology which could say, reduce the energy demand of an encoder from, let's pick numbers out of the air, a kilowatt to 500 watts, okay, for the same given quality of output. But let's supposing that they do that in a way that's, say, less complex. They could then market that their encoder is 50% more energy efficient. <laughs> and given the way some marketing goes, that might even be tagged with 50% greener, which I would challenge. <laughs> but, uh, but if you put that marketing out without having a systemic view, what you might find is down at the edge of the network, you've put 5% more on the decode complexity and the decode energy of these set-top boxes and the various millions of devices. And by taking 500 watts out of the system at the core, you might have loaded several megawatts onto the actual total system energy. And having that 
complete systemic view is really important as we uh, as we scale these architectures up. You know, we've got to make sure that the savings in one place don't have an adverse unintended consequence and a knock-on effect elsewhere in the network. And that's why we have to all come together and talk, because otherwise our isolated marketing might not work on a big picture level. And I understand that's a challenge for a codec vendor and why actually we have to have a market regulator view and ha have to understand how that might affect a market, because it may be in the codec vendor's favor to be able to say, we need some regulation here, guys, because this isn't fair. We've got to change what we're doing because actually inefficiencies in the core might lead to massive efficiencies at the edge. But if you're buying on efficiency, that's difficult to market. So there are some interesting challenges, some really interesting discussions to be had. And the more that join in, the better the picture we have. And coding is, is always a trade-off. If you, for example, switch to a more advanced codec and you get, let's say, 50% bitrate reduction, then you're streaming less bits over the wire, but it takes 5x, 10x to encode, and maybe 3 to 4x to decode that more compressed stream. So you really need to look, as, as you said, at, at the end-to-end -end system and see what are the trade-offs. One of the things we, we do a lot in Beamer is optimize the code, make it run faster so it takes less CPU. And we do assembly language and we utilize the latest architectures, AVX 512, and uh, now we're doing a lot of work on ARM because ARM is starting to become um, pervasive in data centers. You know, for example, for our photo optimization, we can do it cheaper on ARM uh, instances than on Intel. Now, if you go and you optimize the uh, performance of the CPU for encoding, uh, we sell it as, you know, more channels per server. But if you think about it, more channels per server means you will use less servers, you know, and that's better. That's less electricity. Absolutely. And I think what's very interesting is, is having that complete view. So we have, I, I'm going to sing the praises of one of our members, Radiant Media Player. Uh, Arnold gave a presentation on what we call fondly green stream, which is the last 20 minutes of our monthly members meetings. We ask someone to give a presentation and just sort of turn it out as some content on our LinkedIn page and so on. And Arnold gave this great presentation uh, where he'd used the Radiant Media Player to set up these kind of test harnesses on different hardware, different uh, browser combinations and pull all the different combinations of manifests and create a profile of the energy using one of the Java WebKit SDKs or something has got a, a, a percentage of energy, which is reasonably consistent point to measure. And he produced an amazing uh, profile of all the different combinations of audio codec, the video codec, and different browsers, different hardware platforms. And, I, and it's amazing how it varies. And I think getting that joined up with your end of the equation and the output source, it's endlessly fascinating. It's not that streaming had, had become a bit dull for me, but the performance discussion was getting a little bit, was splitting a lot of hairs here. Uh, where's the next big changes coming in the last two years? The idea of going back over everything and doing exactly the same in terms of function, but doing it much more power efficiently is like a big, big, big open door of innovation. It's, there's so much space to go back and think over the same problems, but with a new KPI. Yeah, absolutely. In, in video encoding, which is the world that Dror and I uh, primarily or exclusively uh, live in, the new vector performance 
I am not a part of any evaluation today or any sales discussion or any marketing uh, development uh, initiatives where performance is not either the number one KPI or driver or, you know, factor that's being either examined or being um, uh, talked about. And if it's not number one, it's a very, very close to number one, number two. Yes, of course, people talk quality. Of course, everybody wants to know bit rate efficiency. And the challenge, what's making it so uh, interesting and fun for those of us uh, building in coders and, and working with codec optimizations and implementations is that we have to give them their cake and let them eat it too, so to speak. So you can't give performance, then say, oh, sorry, you know, AV1, uh, just to pick one standard, is going to give you the same uh, compactness as H.264, you know, <laughs> or, or HEVC. No, you still have to show that 20 or 30, 35, 40% advantage while also, you know, being faster, while also providing a, a certain level of quality as required for the use case. And uh, so that's really fun. And there's a lot of discussion now about moving to GPU and moving to ASIC, much more power efficient uh, platforms for video encoding. Which is a very interesting uh, thing because it, it, it makes me think of windowing. <laughs> it's like the codec and hardware cycles, if they were windowed better in sync, it would probably breed more efficiency. You know, I think the cycles with which ASICs come out compared with soft codecs is obviously different. And one has a totally different profile of embedded emissions. The question is, you know, if you're using soft codecs, do they actually outlive the hardware they run on? Is the hardware under them upgraded faster? Because if it is, then that has a different emissions profile from if you're waiting for the ASICs to come out and to, to get that step change. There's all sorts of amazing economics and dynamics Energy's largely just fallen under price for a long time, but I think it's now become a little bit more important uh, as a metric. I think it has its sustainability impact, and that's bought it out from behind just being something where you want to report that the energy is sane to the FD. You want to report that it's, it's clean and green and going down, uh, at least proportionally going down. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And there's education that's needed. And so I'm wondering as well uh, what the role of greening a streaming is. And this is where, you know, again, not to be hung up because I really do like how you're taking a full system view end to end, you know, even all the way into the to the router that's turned on 24-7 in the home. If that router's off, well, you can't stream anything, you know, and yet there's a sliver of that energy that you have to account for. Uh, in terms of. So I really like that. I think the brave thing to do, you know, data attribution looks at that. That's just round numbers here. 100 watt router sitting in the corner of the house. Data attribution tries to share out that 100 watt energy between all the different organizations on the shared infrastructure. So it's a fair way to attribute some of that 100 watts. But if you reduce how much you claim of it, it doesn't mean that the 100 watts changes. Yeah, exactly. And, and actually, a better approach, if I'm really honest, is if we all turn around and go, well, in order for my service to get through to that house, I'm going to own the problem of that 100 watts. How do I signal to the 100 watt system that I don't need it at the moment? If the only thing someone does in their home is watches Netflix or Disney or BBC or whatever it is, then when they're not doing it, turn it off signal to it somehow let's get that into the system you know we've got amazing virtualized orchestration platforms in SEN and nfv maturing now that's what it's for 
let's do it. Let's not just sit and scratch our chins and go carbon offsetting, don't you know? Let's use that stuff and let's have, a, let's have fun with it and make it clean and green. It's a really huge vision. So my question, though, is on the education front. I don't totally agree, Jor, that employees drive green initiatives. Uh, and, and here's why. You and I know of organizations that have amazing, from an academic and a technical perspective, amazing encoding pipelines, and they're running hundreds of encodes of the same video. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How is that green? And you have to ask yourself, are there other ways to achieve, or what if you gave up some percentage of whatever the perceived benefit is, and then you think about like hardware, pull a hundred engineers, you know, in our industry and say, Hey, rate, um, software running on CPU, GPU, ASIC, and some other combination of architectures. And everyone universally without even thinking twice and go, Oh, the software and CPU, it's the only way to run. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, you know, you and I also are working with certain hardware configurations where we know either what's here or what's coming that is incredibly competitive. And the energy delta is just, you can't even imagine, you know, it's 20, 30, 40, 50 times less, you know, so that's the question, Dom is, you know, what is the role of greening a streaming? Because some of it is also just to present and obviously you can't, and you should not take on the role of, you know, it's not pushing a vendor or pushing a technology, but saying, Hey, there is a different and potentially a better way. And, you know, let me tell you about that. So how is greening a streaming thinking about that when you, you know, look across the landscape? I mentioned earlier, we've got a working group, which is um, we call the Outreach Working Group. Part of what we want to represent is not just a forum for the industry, but a voice for engagement with the press, with policymakers and so on. And that leads on to what the policymakers would formally call civil society, which basically means we can engage sort of vicariously through people who actually, if you like, talk to the public in a way that they feel they need to be accountable. And come back to them and explain how the industry works and what we're doing. And when they want to ask how our performance is changing, we can give a coherent picture. And that's going to be much easier than if we're all scattergun uh, and giving different pictures and trying to compete with each other, because that's going to be confusing and probably take everybody off down little silos. So I think we, we form that platform. We have an annual in, in real life meeting uh, which this year was in the House of Parliament. Next year, we plan in the uh, European Parliament, and then uh, hopefully year three, we'll go into US Congress or into that US political environment. And we're working with a group who are sort of specialists in helping trade associations engage in that context. And then we have our virtual events. So we think other than going to engage with policymakers, it's probably ethically wrong to make greening and streaming meetings real world. So uh, we have our monthly members meetings where we catch up the working groups and we share uh, evolving ideas and best practice and have a presentation from a volunteer, one of the members. And then also on September the 7th, we're going to be having our annual summit, which is to mark the anniversary of when we started. And we've got a great program, Zoom event, where most of the members will have further platform to talk more about what they're doing collaboratively. We're trying to get the presentations to be about collaborative projects and about greening and streaming specific projects and other things that they've done as well. And that's open access and free. So there's, there's the intention to 
draw more and more people into the discussion through that type of public engagement. And then we do need to occasionally recruit members, and that does occasionally require in our industry having a beer or two and having a good chat. <laughs> and um, so what we've decided to do is just uh, use serendipity to work out when there's many members at specific events. Trade shows, IBC, that sort of thing. I'm really, really delighted to announce that we've teamed up with the SVA, Women in Streaming Media, and uh, the CDN Alliance. And we, we've hired the Jetty Bar at the beach on Sunday at IBC. So we're calling it a streamers meetup. And uh, there may be even more to, to add to the story in due course, but please do come to that and bring people who you think would be interested in the various different discussions that our groups organise. And there'll be a five-minute stand-up from each of the organisations just so that everyone's aware. It's a pay-your-own-bar so you can sponsor whoever you want. <laughs> <laughs> That's and, awesome. Um, and, uh, and IBC gave us the blessing to do that. They thought it was a good idea. So we are proactively trying to evangelise the topic uh, trying to engage more people in the discussion, gather all the views, and to be honest, kick the tires, have our own views changed. You know, we get this stuff wrong, and we, it's a learning experience. I did also uh, want to touch on one other side of Greening and Streaming World. We're talking about education and reaching out. I mentioned earlier Dan Sheen, who's been one of these sort of axiomatic scientists looking at sustainability uh, and digital media. And his research and actually many of his master's students underpin a lot of the thinking that you read about in the more academic world. And we've definitely adopted him as a mentor, but it was really nice talking to him. We, we don't want to mark our own homework as we gather data. And this is a very important part of something that evolved in Working Group 4. As we get all this data from these live systems or from these other projects... We're aggregating it, but then we're, we're going to use some of the members' fees to commission research projects from academics who we feel are outside and observers of the industry to help us understand where the pain points are so that we're not then reacting to things that we think, you know, we can't then be accused of a lack of transparency and doing things because they look good in the press rather than because they're making up what we countenance through academia to be a real difference. So that provides a nice check and balance, and it also is going to feed into wider research projects they've already started to allocate master's students and postgraduate students to get involved with various different projects and so on so i'm very really excited about that side of things as well because i think it'll keep us sane i think forming a connection with academia uh, and getting some of their rigor will help arbitrate some of the complex discussions that i think the industry might have to have over the next few years yeah that's really great work you are doing i wanted kind of uh, as a close to this uh, conversation uh, if you can leave us with some tips and best practices for our audience. For example, if somebody today is designing a new video delivery system, obviously they're thinking about you know, quality, bitrate, uh, scale, how they're going to do the encoding, the caching, uh, all of that. But now you know, we're talking about a new aspect that they need to take into consideration which is the environmental impact of the new system that they are designing. So what should they have in mind when they go and design this new system and how can they integrate this aspect into their design? I think first and foremost, something that's quite close to my heart and a little plug for ideas here, but I think learn how to commission and decommission services extremely quickly, very reliably, but extremely quickly. 
So don't have them on sitting around just because you've tested them. We are no longer in the SDI world where you nail everything up and it gets soldered together and, and then the room gets locked and then security cameras get put up and forms have to be filled in. And so we are no longer in that world. Everything is disposable to the microsecond. You know, if it goes wrong, it should be something you can recover from and you should be therefore able to commission it much more confidently, much later in the life cycle that it's needed and turn it off immediately after it's used. Look, concentrate loads. Those sort of techniques in systems design are not being thought about. We're just thinking about how do we get it through? How do we get it looking good? How do we get it through? How do we... We're not thinking about... I finished doing that experiment. I, I, I'll give you a completely lateral but humorous um comparison uh, during the lockdowns i had a few board evenings and i built a little weather satellite receiver using a raspberry pi which is strapped to the wall in my office and i noticed one of the um weather satellites started getting this very regular buzz across the images tracked it down to being a medical paging company rang the paging company and had a little explore about what the paging message was and it was just a message saying this is a test message being sent every five minutes and I asked them <laughs> if they could stop sending their test message and they thanked me they went to it they actually got back to me and came back saying they hadn't finished with it but they turned it down to go off only once an hour <laughs> once an hour <laughs> now right. that's been running for years now so some system somewhere is sending out a message saying this is a test message and it's wasting I would imagine the two computers what each end of that system that are involved in that at a bare minimum are burning a kilowatt and we don't think about it we just Don't think about it. You know, I, I talked to a transcoding vendor. They were very proud of the uh, stability of their software and the systems they built. And they said, we have a transcoder that's been running straight without stopping for 13 years. So now I'm thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute. That's, that's not a badge of honor. <laughs> 24-7. The last, the last person watching that channel has already been eaten by their cat. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dom, this has really been a fascinating uh, conversation and an amazing project you're working on. I mean, it started by watching a video about data centers and continued with... like a small mailing list, and now you have AMD and Intel and Akamai and all of these uh, MPs uh, speaking in your favor, and you've done something amazing. It's very clear that you're passionate about it. So I'd like to, first of all, thank you for sharing all of this wonderful work uh, with us and with the listeners of uh, the Video Insiders podcast, and keep on going. Wicked. Well, you know, come and get involved. It's great, it's great to be able to air the story and generate more conversation. I think it's a It's an exciting area for those with a bit of an interest in the streaming space and keen to innovate with some engineering. So please come and get involved. Yeah, well, thank you, Dom. Brilliant. And now, uh, Mark, we will wish all of our listeners, instead of happy encoding, we want to wish them green encoding, right? Green encoding. That's right. Yeah, green encoding, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.